Hello and welcome to the Radical News Radio Hour with Serene Saade. You're listening to WFNU LP St. Paul Frogtown Community Radio 94.1 FM. On this show, we do news and we talk about social movements and community organizing across the Twin Cities. I want to thank Manny Mestas for our show's opening and closing theme music. On today's episode, we're going to be speaking with Asela Sol Young, the er- Executive Director at Urban Homeworks. We'll also be speaking with Rebecca Lawrence at Telling Queer History, the Executive Director there. We're going to start today, though, by talking about the racial home ownership gap with Asela Sol. I am Asale Sol Young. My pronouns are she or they pronouns. Uh, and I am the executive director of Urban Homeworks. Uh, and Urban Homeworks is a 26-year-old affordable housing organization. We consider ourselves more recently as a housing justice board because we're, our focus is on both affordable rental, dignified affordable rental, as well as affordable home ownership. And at the center of that work uh, is community building, um, community justice, and equity. So why don't we start at the beginning? What is the racial home ownership gap and why should we care about it? Mm. Oh, that's a really good question, especially the why we should care about it piece. Um, the home ownership gap, uh, super simplified, is the gap, typically considered the gap between white home ownership rates and black home ownership rates, with of course like Asian and like Latinx. Um, sort of in the middle of that, uh, as well as um, some data points will also show indigenous homeownership rates as well. So that's like kind of general, that's the gap. Um, It is racialized, um, to get that question specifically, um, because uh, since like 1960, (laughs) when uh, the federal government was leveraging a lot of great uh, programs to help more white homeowner, white white families into home ownership. Black and brown families were excluded uh, from those programs. Uh, it wasn't until 1968 that the government actually sought to uh, eradicate that trend, um, seeing the impact that it was having on communities, um, and you know that started to push back on some things like redlining. Um, the sort of difference in banking and how loan uh, officers were treating black and brown and white families. Um, but the unfortunate reality is that, you know, with home ownership, because it's a wealth building tool, it's this country's like longest standing, most trusted wealth building tool. Um, wealth is, is compounded, right? It's compounded generationally. And so even in 1968, when um, families of color, when BIPOC communities were given more access to a just and equitable home ownership path, you know, the gap already existed. Um, And then, you know, you fast forward in time to uh, the housing crisis. Um, You fast forward, yeah, I mean, you fast forward to the housing crisis uh, that started in the 2000s. Um, really hitting hard uh, with the foreclosure crisis in 2008. And, you know, we've now cascaded back. Um, The gap is now bigger than it was uh, in 1960 when essentially racism was built into the law. So uh, racism and discrimination. So 
that's really the that's the gap. Um, I think that's like it gives it's like the gap in a nutshell. Um, the nuances of that are that even while the federal government was working to um, be more supportive of all of its families, again you're start you're not starting at a at a zero sum position for everyone, right? Everyone is starting in terms of race is starting in different places, and then you have um, institutionalized racism is upheld by individual racism, right? So banks are are free to do banks have a lot of uh, freedom and, and leverage to kind of treat families how they wish. And so you had a lot of like predatory lending. Um, and this is particularly speaking to uh, the 2000s, right? So um, not only as a housing crisis, like what caused the housing crisis was that uh, banks started to just implement these predatory lending practices, uh, which were predominantly targeting black and brown families. Um, I mean, it, it also, of course, impacted white families, but again, the rates of these things, right, the rates at which they were targeting black families um, far outpaced white families that were getting swept up into this predatory lending system. But of course, they had to get, they were a part of it, which is why there was the foreclosure crisis. But as the country was working to repair, um, you know, more white families were just treated with compassion in terms of their relationships with banks. They also had longer re banking relationships. And so those are kind of the nuances that people don't think about, um, as well as the fact that, you know, like I, like I mentioned, redlining, which is where um, a city or a district kind of like outlines these areas or neighborhoods and communities, um, and, and they're slated to certain classes which are often, of course, tied to race. Um, and so then what happens in redlining is that the cost of a home in say what's considered a, um, that's been slated as a middle class or white area is far more valuable um, than one that's slated in a low income area, even though it might be the same size, the same number of bedrooms. Um, you know, at that point, there wasn't this thing of like, how are we rating crime, right? These were just, uh, kind of your typical everybody's working kind of neighborhoods, um, and this is how uh, the sort of district maps were kind of chopped up uh, economically. Um, and so banks were less eager to loan to families wanting to um, purchase in their communities, uh, black and brown families wanting to purchase in their communities, and actually you still have that today. So, for example, if you um, look at interest rates for a home in North Minneapolis versus a home in South Minneapolis, you can still see that kind of um, discrimination happening there uh, today, which honestly, I it, like was surprising to me. Um, but I, I just did a little bit of quick research into that. Um, I think this is actually really helpful. And it's actually getting to like my second question, which is, what is this racial homeownership gap mean, you know, close up for individuals, families, communities? Yeah. Um, so that's a great question. Um, so right now, you know, we are all experiencing like this rising cost in housing um, that they're predicting is not going to 
uh, drop anytime soon. So when you think about, again, like this compounded generational wealth that white families have been able to accumulate and the lack of that uh, in black and brown families, uh, that leads to less ability for a black or brown family to have down payment, right? Um, Or a down payment that's 20% of the cost of a home. Um, When you're under 20%, that matters because when you're under 20%, um, you have to have things like mortgage insurance. Um, There's this assumption that if you don't have that savings, that you're more likely to default. So now you have mortgage insurance. That hits more black and brown families. Um, It means that regardless of one's current education or even salary as a black and black or brown individual, um, they don't, they, you still don't have the generational resources. So a lot of folks, um, you know, a lot of white homeowners, new homeowners will be able to look to their families to um, help them with that first down payment or help them with that first home. And that's just typically not true for a black or brown um, individual or family. Um, so you're less, able to compete and you also have um, just less capacity in wealth building in terms of your banking relationship because again banks see your inability to put down a larger down payment as like your inability to manage your money well or your inability to save Um, so just it just further marginalizes marginalizes you from that market which continues to grow the gap even as there's more equity and salaries and things like that, but that's also still a place of that we need to do a lot of work. Um, you know, and you're just more, yeah, and I think the last piece on that is that you're just more likely to need institutional support. So whether that's down payment assistance, which again is is a loan, <laughs> so it's not anything, you still have to pay that money back. Um, so whether that's down payment assistance or a partnership with like a land trust or something like that, all of that takes away from the value of the home or the wealth that you're able to build off of that home when you're ready to sell it. Um, so though, though those things are helpful for families, I don't want to say that they're not because I actually believe in those um, supports, but they continue to grow the gap because, again, as white families are just able to buy homes 20% down payment, you have black and brown families that are not able to do that. And so when they sell their homes, even if it's a home at the same cost, Right, the wealth that they accumulate from that sale is less. Um, and then I think that, you know, when I think about like what it means on the ground with like just our families, is that that means that they're staying in the rental market much longer. It means that um, staying in the rental market longer, if they're not living with a dignified landlord, you know, that they're really at the whims of the landowner. Um, and that could be a predatory landowner. Um, it could be someone who simply, you know, retires and is just like, I want to sell this house or someone who, um, you know, passes on. And then the, the state of the home is, is left up in the air. And so it just keeps that um, uh, instability in our communities, in our black and brown communities, consistent. So, I mean, part of home ownership, people are always like, it's not for everyone. It's a lot of responsibility. And I'm like, yes, all of that is true. It is not for everyone. It is a lot of responsibility to own the home. But what are we saying about choice? And what are we saying about the capacity for people to be stable uh, in their communities and therefore improve 
the state of the community, improving your family, improve, improve the community connectivity, improve uh, the health and wellness of that community. So by, by the gap continuing and the government really not taking more aggressive action to closing that gap, we're going to continue to see, you know, these high rates of um, homelessness and high mobility in black and brown communities, which we know leads to a lot of other things, right? Like homeownership is directly tied to, I, I'm sorry, stability is directly tied to one's capacity around education. Um, even with young people, young people get sucked into supporting their families in, this, in these in, unstable situations, so they're less able to focus on their education, but that also means that the parents of that family are less able to focus on education because everyone's time and energy is going toward where are we laying our head next. Um, and so I think that we have a real, while we call homeownership wealth building and we, we enjoy talking about it that way because again, the legacy of it, there's a real problem where we have over commodified a basic human need. Um, and so I think that that's just going to lead to a lot more problems. And like I said, we're already seeing an influx of tent cities and things like that across the country. On some of these policies and systems that have been used to create this racial home ownership gap. But I'm wondering, um, since you've touched on that, what responses are actually in place right now to lessen that? Like what, what is the city? What are communities doing? What are governments doing to say this is a problem and we need to deal with this? Yeah, so I think a lot of the work done to counteract is done at the community level, is done at the um, the organizational level, like sort of nonprofits, um, going to the city, going to our, our state government um, to advocate um, around closing the gap. Um, I think that part of the part of the the issue is that while we have worked so hard to take discrimination out of our laws and policies, what we're what we're yet what we haven't yet been able to acknowledge is that in order for black and brown families to actually achieve equity, to some extent we need to Sort of rebuild a discrimination into our, our policies, right? Um, we need to be able to say that just like when there were certain programs at the federal level that white families were the only folks to benefit from in order to counter the long-term generational impact of that, we have to be willing to say, okay, there, there are programs, federal, federally funded programs that are only going to black and brown families. That is literally the only way that the gap is closed. So in the meantime, uh, there's just an on-the-ground hustle to uh, support families with down payment assistance that isn't a loan. This is something that um, nonprofits like Urban Homeworks are doing. Um, there's also a hustle to ensure that, um, that sales of single-family homes and duplexes are going directly to community members who are going to live in those homes. Um, so for the duplexes, be a, a landlord occupant um, 
in that duplex. And so that keeps them connected to the community and to the lives of the folks that they're renting to. Um, you know, there's just a little bit more space when you are an organization that's in the community to really filter how you market um, and how you um, sort of just do outreach around your initiatives that keeps you within, you know, that keeps you legal um, in terms of what I was just talking about. But I, I do think that, you know, nonprofits are, are nonprofits. So our capacity to even, um, it's like we can make incremental change, absolutely, especially collectively. And I think that there is a real movement right now for housing nonprofits to just really bear down on racial justice and equity, um, where we're really just like hustling, we're collaborating, we're getting out into the community, we're thinking about new and innovative ways to allocate resources. And I think that that's powerful, but it's incremental. Um, and what we can't do what the federal government can do. We can't do what policy can do. Um, and there's also, you know, folks working on different policy initiatives. But I would say that what I'm aware of right now is that most policy initiatives are around uh, what's happening with rent rates, right? So it's like <laughs> um, people, the city, uh, the Twin Cities are becoming less and less affordable, even for renters, let alone folks that have dreams of, of home ownership. And so we have to deal with this as a pathway. And I think that that is, um, that can't be overlooked, that if people are homeless or highly mobile, the first thing that they need is stability. It's impossible to build savings. Uh, it's impossible to look up right, and see what, what options are there, what opportunities are there when you're hustling for space to rest your head in every night. So first we need stability. We need stable, dignified rental opportunities to take people off of the streets and off of couches. From there, we can work with more families. Again, as nonprofit institutions um, that still have to work with banks, that still have to work within the policies as they are today, but we can work with those families to help um, them integrate uh, the system's expectations of them. But again, like I just, and I know I keep coming back to this, but there's a reality of those expectations that are denying the history that we just talked through, the history of redlining, the history of these federal programs that discluded black and brown families. And then it's saying today, okay, well, you get down payment assistance and there's all these nonprofits here, but we're talking about something that compounds over time, which is money, which is wealth. So if we're really serious about closing the gap, the federal government has to take a courageous stand. It cannot just be on the backs of, you know, nonprofit workers and organizers that are always gonna be down to hustle. But if we're really trying to close the gap, the federal government has to step in. Is there anything that you want to share that I haven't asked you yet? Anything that you think would be really informative or help people understand either the problem or the solutions that I haven't asked you about? I think just what I encounter in my work um, is just a lot of folks um, with wealth accumulation that are only willing to look at what's happening today, um, which is that there is 
you know, federal assistance, uh, state and local governments are providing additional down payment assistance. Um, but folks are unwilling to recognize uh, the systemic um, just racism that has really driven housing um, and housing practices and continues to do so today. Um, you know, and I think that we have like banks are implicated and very few conversations get into how banks have impacted the gap. Um, and like I said, continue to do so. You know, today, 2021, if you're trying to buy a house in North, your interest rate is higher than if you're trying to buy a house in South. Um, that is, that's discrimination. And it is something that no one is speaking to. Um, no one's acknowledging things like that. The other thing that I didn't talk about is the fact that as the market is being driven up, part of that is these like wealthy corporations coming in and buying single family homes, buying duplexes. Um, you know, maybe they're renovating them really well. Sometimes they're renovating them just on the surface aesthetically and the actual renovations are crappy. But either way, they're turning them around at much higher rates, and that is a part of why the market is, is being driven so high, making it harder for like everyday families to purchase homes. Last question, where can people learn about urban homework? Yeah, so the best place to learn about urban homework is to go to urbanhomework.org. So that's urban, U-R-B-A-N, H-O-M-E-W-O-R-K-S, one word, dot org. Also follow us on social media. We have a Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram account. Thanks to Asil Sol for joining us on air. If you're just tuning in, this is the Radical News Radio Hour with Serene Saade, and you're listening to WFNU LP St. Paul, Frogtown Community Radio 94.1 FM. Up next, we have Rebecca Lawrence, the Executive Director at Telling Queer History. Uh, my name is Rebecca Lawrence, also known as RJ. My pronouns are they, them. And I am the Founder and Executive Director of Telling Queer History. Um, I'm also a photographer that has worked in the nonprofit and LGBTQ community for about 10 years, and also portrait and event photography. What is Telling Queer History? Telling Queer History is a space to gather LGBTQ plus um, across identities and generations and connect across storytelling. So our mission is to use storytelling gatherings to bring communities together to foster compassion, empathy, and healing. Why did you, I mean, as somebody who's also an executive director, yeah. you know, that's hard work. Why found this organization? Like, what, what was your purpose? Um, the beginning of it really started um, with my own explorations, uh, wanting to know queer history. I grew up in northeast Minneapolis and knew that we had queer people here before I was born, and we had a strong queer community here, but the history was not recorded and shared very much. It was very much about the two coasts. 
And so I started doing my own exploring in about 2012 um, when the marriage amendment was brought to Minnesota. Um, and through that, I was a volunteer and got to really learn, along with lots of other people, the power of storytelling. Um, that campaign used our own personal stories about love and marriage in order to help change uh, people's minds and hearts um, towards marriage equality. And so with that and then hearing my uncles um, who uh, shared their stories about living through the AIDS epidemic in the beginning um, here in, in the early 90s in Minnesota um, and hearing them describe the loss in their community, it really sparked. I had already wanted to build the space to share stories and connect across generations. And that story really made it feel urgent um, that I needed to make sure I got those stories and heard those stories before they were gone. Um, and that urgency has returned with this new pandemic um, as we are losing people and disconnecting in ways and also the option to connect in new ways. Um, so our events came from that desire to, and the and the campaign also really showed me the difference um, across class and race in our queer communities. Um, that's in any community, but uh, as queers, and I use queer as an umbrella term for myself um, and a specific identity for myself. So. In the LGBTQ community, we come from all kinds of life and identities. And so we're often lumped together, but all of the other systems that separate us, like class and race, um, separate us in the queer community too. So there weren't many spaces that were intergenerational um, that worked across class and race. Um, and so I'm hoping to build more of that and through our partnerships and our events. Um, so that's that's the uh, idea behind it. And as far as becoming a nonprofit, um, we've been holding these events. Um, June was our eighth year, so we're starting our ninth year. And it got to the point where um, we've gone through lots of volunteers, lots and lots of people have held and dedicated themselves to this. Um, to telling queer history and then it just felt like in order to sustain it it needed to be separated from me uh, legally and to be able to have the autonomy that and access that nonprofits uh, being a part of that system gives us and we're also trying to within that system there is a lot of um, harm has been done so we're trying to build something that still feels true to our values within a system that and always flexible in that way. So how can people get involved? What kind of activities do you do? What kind of events do you have any upcoming things on the calendar? Yeah, we have lots of ways to join us. Um, this year we decided to do an overarching theme uh, for the whole program year. So the theme is justice. And our first event will be Sunday, October 10th. Uh, and it's going to be on housing justice, um, the Treader Collection, which is an LGBTQ archive at the University of Minnesota, is going to be co-hosting that um, 
all of our events are going to be virtual as far as we can see in the COVID future. Um, and it's from 2 to 4, so you can find it on our website and Facebook and Eventbrite. I think they haven't been posted yet, but hopefully by this interview going live it will be. Um, and they're sliding scale events, so you can make a donation if you're able. They're all ages, ASL interpreted, live caption. Uh, our events are always substance free. And what else? Um, yeah, so that's the first event. So Housing Justice is October 10th. And then December 12th will be Racial Justice. And we're partnering with Voices for Racial Justice on they will be curating that event. Uh, February 13th will be focused on environmental justice through art. And April 10th will be our annual fundraiser called Fast Friends, where you get to kind of like the idea of speed dating. We, we're trying to make our fundraiser a space to connect across um, identities, just like our events. So holding those same values throughout. And then June 12th is our ninth anniversary, and we'll be talking about food and economic justice. And we are hoping that we can do an outdoor hybrid event for that, but we will see what, what the future holds. So those are the events you can join. Um, and then we're also very much looking for new board members, so folks who have the capacity to, do, to volunteer four to eight hours a month. Um, we are a working board, so we're still growing our internal capacity, so you need to be able to dedicate a good amount of time. Um, and then if you can't commit to that, you can also volunteer with us. Uh, we're trying to build some committees, so folks who are excited about fundraising, community outreach, finance, um, whatever your passion is, we hope to find a way to connect you. So you can reach out at um, via email hello at tellingqueerhistory.com. Um, if you want to be a storyteller or community partner, you can also reach out to that email. Um, and then, of course, we, we love financial support. Uh, if you have the means, you can be a sustaining monthly donor starting at $5 a month, and um, that goes through GiveMN page. Uh, you can also find a donate button on our website, tellingqueerhistory.com. Um, and one-time donations are also very much appreciated. What do you want people to know about your organization? Like, is there something you really want to highlight for them? I guess one of the things I'd like to highlight that it is a small group really trying to hold the space, and we very much want uh, to expand that. Um, to have folks have the community hold this space with us. So we are working to build uh, a wider base of supporters um, and also storytellers. So if this is something that calls to you, please reach out. Um, and then also just there, there is room for allies to be a part of this. Um, folks who don't identify in the LGBTQ community. Um, we welcome you to be volunteers and to be donors, and they can also attend our events, but we um, reserve board membership and storytelling um, for folks 
who share that identity. So I know that you've already given some of the links out, but can you repeat them? Where can people learn more information? And, um, you know, there's social media, any of those sites? Yeah, we have our website is tellingqueerhistory.com. And we have a Facebook page. I think it's Telling Quistory, like queer history all blended together. Um, and we have Instagram. Uh, we have an email newsletter that you can sign up via Facebook or our website. Um, my general email is hello at tellingqueerhistory.com. So you can get a hold of us or ask questions there. Again, yeah, I'll definitely include links to everything in the show notes for, for today's for the for the episode this airs on. Thank you. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. I love being able to highlight local resources and spaces for people to getting involved in community and I, I take a lot of hope in the fact that your organization is out there doing the work that it's doing. Thank you. Oh, I just thought of one more thing I'd like to highlight. Of course. We we do have different themes and storytellers almost every single event. And so if there's something that you're interested in, you can look through our archives. There's some recordings on our website and YouTube. And then um, you can also ask in an email if we've had a conversation about a certain thing. Um, we really worked to lift up um, multiple marge, oh, excuse me, let me try again. Um, identities that have multiple marginalized identities. That is not the right way to say that either, but I'm going to keep moving on. Um, we we make sure to have a variety of storytellers and and lifting up BIPOC and trans experiences, especially um, as those are not as often heard in our queer history and in our world in general. Thanks to Rebecca for speaking with me for this episode. Well, that's it for today, folks. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Radical News Radio Hour with Serene Saadeh. You're listening to WFNU, LP, St. Paul, Frogtown, Community Radio, 94.1 FM.